0: The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business.
1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
2: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Peter Tanus, who is the president of Lynx Investment Advisory in Washington, D.C. He's also the author of a new book, uh, called Kiplinger's uh, Guide to Building a Winning Portfolio. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you.
3: My pleasure to be with you.
2: Let's just start with a little bit of your background and tell us uh, kind of about Lynx Advisory and, and your background before you wrote this book.
3: All right. Uh, Lynx Investment Advisory is in uh, a, a part of the investment business that few investors ever encounter. It's called Investment Consulting. Uh, You know, whereas Merrill Lynch or Smith Barney may be the top names in the investment or brokerage business, the number one name in our business, the Merrill Lynch of our business, is Cambridge Associates, and most people have never heard of them either. Essentially, what we do is we are hired by wealthy individuals and by institutions, typically foundations and college endowments, to help them allocate their portfolio and then pick the right managers to manage each element of the portfolio. Then we benchmark the portfolio and make sure everybody's doing their job or they get fired. And essentially, we work for the client. We're not selling them stuff. That's what Lynx does. Um, I was a founder of Lynx uh, some 15 years ago. I've been in the investment business for over 40 years. Build a Winning Portfolio is my fourth investment book, and uh, essentially I think I've answered your question.
2: Very good. Let's just, uh, overall, you, the, the, uh, what you're doing for institutions, for college endowments and so on, has parallels in what an individual should do as well as far as diversifying their portfolio. Is that correct?
3: Absolutely, and, and, and indeed, we do work with individuals, but uh, in our case, the starting amount is $2 million.
2: Okay. So you talk in your first chapter of uh, Build a Winning Portfolio about what is a portfolio and diversification. Uh, is this something that's, that's uh, strange for a lot of people? They, they kind of don't have a really well-allocated portfolio. They kind of pick one stock or one mutual fund or bond here or there. And they don't really have a, a kind of a, a whole strategy in putting it all together. Is that a problem you see in other people's portfolios?
3: Well, yes, indeed. Um, in some cases, it's a fortuitous event. For instance, they happen to be a uh, a founder or a, an early stockholder in something like microsoft or google or aol and uh... they end up with a big pile of money in one stock and that creates a happy type of problem but it is a problem in other cases as you alluded to jordan you have a situation where uh, people have a bunch of stocks that they bought or they have a bunch of mutual funds that they bought And they may think they're diversified, but when you use some of the tools that are available to analyze this, you find that they're not diversified. For example, owning five large-cap growth funds is not diversification because they'll all tend to move in sync with one another.
2: So just tell us the basics of why is diversification such a good idea. I mean, people always say diversify, but why is it better to be diversified than to trying to pick winners.
3: Yeah, that's that, that, that's a that's a very good question. We could spend a lot of time on that, but let me try to give as succinct an answer as possible. The biggest problem with investing in the stock market, or pretty much with anything else, is risk. If you're if you do not diversify, you are putting all your eggs in the proverbial basket and you will ride it up or down for better or worse. The idea is that none of us can predict the future. So if all of your assets are in either one investment or one type of investment, then you are betting the ranch that that particular thing is going to do very well and not have massive movements that will scare you away, and that is, that is a bet you ought not to make. What diversification does is it smooths, smooths out the process of investing for the long term, simply because some of your investments will do well while others are not doing so well, and then during different times, the ones that weren't doing well before may be doing much better than the other ones that had good performance last year, for example. What diversification does is that it spreads out the risk, and by spreading out the risk, you are acknowledging that you really don't know what's going to happen next year or the year after, and this way you've hedged your bet.
2: Now, some would say that you should kind of do counter-cyclical reallocation, that at the end of each year, you should buy more of your losers and sell some of your winners, because what always did well is about to not do well and, and vice versa. Is that something you recommend as far as reallocation?
3: No. Uh, it's a little too dumb and simplistic. Uh, it's like all of these wonderful formulas that rely on back tests. Mm-hmm. In our business, the word back test is a very dirty word. Um, let me First of all, let me explain what a back test is for those who don't okay. know. A back test is simply taking, let me pick one popular one that was popular I, uh, half a dozen years ago, the dogs of the Dow.
2: Yeah, there's still mutual funds that have that strategy. Right.
3: Yes. The dogs of the Dow was very popular, uh, I don't know, five, six uh, years ago, and it burst on the scene with this theory, and there were many variations of it. One variation was, you took the 30 Dow Jones to- stocks and you sold the, uh, the 10 best performing and you bought the worst 10 performing, pretty much what you were just saying, right?
2: Or, or the ones with the highest yields, basically. Or
3: the ones with the highest yields. There are there many variations of this theory, okay?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, and the way you proved that it worked was you back-tested it and you said, basically, hey, look, if only you had done this for the past 20 years, your returns would have been 18% per year versus only 11% for the Dow Jones had you bought and sold my gosh we just found the holy grail of investing
2: and a lot of money went that direction following yeah, the strategy yeah so what happened as soon as all the money went in it stopped working <laughs> is that right which is why back tests
3: are a, a back tests in the industry are something we kind of laugh at uh one reason is I've never met a back test I didn't like Uh because you can always find a way looking
2: backwards to make a lot of money. It is much easier than going forward, I guess. No kidding. (laughs) Uh So you're saying that looking at these back tests, because you see this all the time with money managers, particularly when they're launching a new fund. Uh, showing all the back tests and how this has worked so well over time. So you're saying you should just ignore all that it has no relevance. To it. All
3: that there're better ways to evaluate performance. First of all, look, one of the let's talk about mutual funds since that's what most people buy, all right? You take a mutual fund with a 5 or 6 year track record and it looks pretty good, okay? And you assume that because This manager did very well over the past five or six years. Chances are he's going to do or she's going to do very well over the next five or six years. Mm -hmm. History shows, however, that great mutual fund performance in any given year or even over a number of years has no better chance over the next three to five years. Of being in the top quartile, say, or uh, in the top twenty-five percent of mutual fund performers, than any other method of picking them. Now, one of the biggest challenge—if if you ask me, what is the biggest challenge we face in our business? Mm-hmm. The single biggest challenge we face is trying to distinguish between a manager have being lucky or skillful. How do you determine if that five-year record was just because the guy was lucky or because he was really skillful?
2: I mean, five years is a lot of luck. That's got to be consistent luck over a long period of time.
3: Exactly. And by the way, and as you just correctly pointed out, time is one of the factors that you look at. Because if you take the stock market as a whole, I think most Aware investors know how difficult it is to beat the market. Most mutual funds, the majority of mutual funds that invest in large cap stocks do not beat the stock market.
2: Meaning the S&P 500 or the indexes, you say. Exactly right. What are the latest numbers on that? About 80% don't? No, it's not that high.
3: Uh, the latest numbers are in the 60-70%
2: area. So that means 30% do beat it.
3: That means 30% do beat it, but guess what? It's
2: not the same 30%. It ain't the same 30% every <laughs> but, year. Now, you talk in your book, uh, Building a Winning Portfolio, about uh, Peter Lynch and, and Warren Buffett, and you say that you know, there are, as you would call them, outliers, you yes. can consistently beat the market. So are they just some kind of uh, asteroid from out of space or something? Or how is that possible?
3: Well, you, you get into you get into big discussions. In an earlier book called Investment Gurus, I interviewed these people. I interviewed Peter Lynch and Mario Gabelli and all the well-known names. Uh, and I also interviewed a bunch of finance academics, including two Nobel Prize winners. Now, where these people are different is that the academics for the most part believe that there's no such thing as skill in investing because the markets are efficient Mm -hmm. the peter lynch's of this world believe that they are talented uh... i concluded that for the most part there are some talented people and by the way in my book uh... build a winning portfolio i point out there's a chapter in which I take you through the Morningstar, um, uh, the the star website's version of how to pick a mutual fund and what questions to ask, and I'll and I walk you through what are the right qu- answers to those questions to get at hopefully a winning mutual fund, which will be a part of your portfolio. Okay. But by and large, let me just cut to the chase here and give you the answer uh, to the question: A there are talented people out there b uh there's a w- there may be a way to pick them and c we'll talk about it later
2: we're going to come back after the break uh this is jordan goodman of the money answer show and my guest this hour is peter tanos uh, who is the uh, president of Lynx investment advisory and he's written a new book called build a winning portfolio we'll be back after this break
0: Internets only, all business and financial radio network, Voice America Business.
4: You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, the workwonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, the Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business.
1: Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. both their products and services are invited to become members of the money answers network the public can sign up for membership in the money answers network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources to learn more visit www.moneyanswers.com get ahead with money answers
0: the internet's only all business and financial radio network voice america business
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Peter Tanos, who is the president of Lynx Investment Advisory in Washington, D.C. Uh, He's just authored a new book called Build a Winning Portfolio. Uh, published by Kaplan Financial Publishers. Uh, welcome back to the show, Peter.
3: Thank you, Jordan.
2: We were talking about uh, genius and the efficient market theory and how some people like uh, Peter Lynch or Warren Buffett or Mary Gabelli can consistently beat the averages when you say that most people don't think that's that's possible. So right. so the solution to this is just put your money into these funds that consistently beat the averages and, and you figured it out. Isn't that the way it works?
3: Yeah. W- 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 wouldn't it be great if it were that simple and you know better? Uh, the problem is that there are very, very few consistent outperformers in the mutual fund or in any other business. Uh, what we, what I often tell my clients, it's kind of interesting, is I say, you know, when you come in here, I assume you're the unluckiest person I've ever met, mm-hmm. which means that if I tell you we have a manager or a fund has beaten his benchmark or the market for the past six years i am pretty convinced that the minute you invest with him he's going to start doing very badly (laughs) only because you're so unlucky so how do i counter that i counter that number one by diversifying properly and by making sure that we are in many different asset classes to as we discussed earlier smooth out the ride but to get back to the point before the break about beating the market and why so few do it, I, I can give you an answer to that. One of the reasons is that if you invest in large company stocks, the market is very efficient in that area. Why? Because there are dozens of analysts covering every move the company makes. So the chances that one analyst has more insight than another on Google or Microsoft or any large company you want to mention uh, is rare and not likely to have happened. So in big company stocks, you're better off buying an index fund, which might charge you 10 or 50 uh, ten or twenty basis points or a fraction of a of a percent, because if you buy a large cap mutual fund, you're basically going to be paying a hundred basis points or thereabouts, and that hundred basis points has to be made up in performance just to stay even. An unlikely event. The real answer is this to get out performance, to beat the market You have to take a chance with a more concentrated portfolio. So what we tell our clients is this. You ought to have core investments in the stock market, likely in index-type funds, which will cost you very little. And guess what? You'll never trail the market. You won't beat it either, but at least you won't be disappointed. And to get the extra performance, we'll use some satellite managers. This is called by many investment professionals a core satellite approach. The satellite managers will be mutual funds in areas like international, small cap, uh, maybe even emerging markets, which are riskier so that you would have a smaller allocation to these. But because these portfolios are concentrated, they don't have 300, 400, 500 stocks. They may only have 30 or 40 stocks. Here, you're paying for the manager's skill in selecting the right companies and knowing them inside and out. And that those are the ones that have a very good chance of beating the market.
2: So for the average investor, using that strategy, what percentage should you keep typically uh, in the index funds and the kind of uh, more aggressive concentrated portfolios?
3: Well, uh, of course, this, there are a lot of other factors here, like the age and the amount yeah. of time uh, you well, have. So somebody in
2: their 30s, you know, kind an of average middle-class person. You know. Okay. Um,
3: uh, let's assume that you're going to be 70% in stocks and 30% in safe things like fixed income or municipal. Uh-huh. Of the 70% in stocks, you should probably have half or a little bit more in index-type funds, possibly uh, two-thirds of the of that amount in U.S. index fund, and in, in one U.S. index fund, uh, any any you know you can pick the Vanguard S&P 500 is obviously a good choice, mm-hmm. very low cost. and then you also would have some amount. In an inter- a broadly diversified international fund, mm-hmm. because uh, that kind of diversification has become increasingly important. Let's say the two of those represent roughly sixty percent of your equity portion
2: of your portfolio, and the other forty percent is spread amongst various concentrated funds. Exactly right. The other forty percent, you would buy three
3: or four concentrated funds in areas like emerging markets, that would be your riskiest, Uh, small cap, and here you might do a small cap value and a small cap growth. And uh, I increasingly, and I I talk about this in the book, uh, unlike the portfolios of 20 and 30 years ago, I think today every portfolio, no matter what size, should have an allocation to energy and specifically to oil. We can go into this if you want.
2: You mean energy funds? And and to gold. So so precious metals funds and energy funds, you're saying? Exactly right. Okay, so that's a a typical portfolio. So the argument against what you're saying, Peter, would be that, first of all, the market is not efficient, and see what happens all the time is you're getting all kinds of earnings surprises on the upside and downside, and you've got all these fancy analysts predicting uh, earnings, and the earnings are coming in way above or way below in many cases, you know, what analysts are expecting. Therefore, the stocks shoot up or shoot down, um, even on the earnings and then also on the perception of the earnings. The company, a uh, Google, can come out with a super fantastic, uh, you know, 50% increase in earnings, and then the forecast it gives is not quite as bullish as people think, and the tr- stock drops You're 50%. Except Except the guidance Google, is Google not what
3: In be, fact, doesn't give guidance. But go ahead.
2: But but you know companies do right. that all the time, and the actual numbers can be spectacular. Yes. Uh, recently, Intel, for example, I think came in with like a yes. 50% earnings increase, g- gave a kind of mediocre, uh, you know, guidance, and the stock dropped from 27 to 19 in one trade well, or something like that. See,
3: you're making the argument, Jordan. You're making the argument for market efficiency, not against it. The whole point of of the of the efficient market theory is that the only thing that changes stock prices is new information, not somebody's brilliant foresight. So that when that new information comes out, either an earnings surprise up or down, or new guidance or a new statement by the company that is either good or bad, yeah. that's when the stock price changes. That is, the, that is the function of an efficient market.
2: So the argument would be, if you're a really smart person and you can anticipate the earnings or the guidance is going to be better or worse than expected, then you can buy or sell the stock in advance of the big move one way or the other.
3: Right, except that there's no history of anybody doing that successfully
2: over a long period of time. I see. A lot of people say they do that, but you're saying that that's not the reality.
3: Sure, but go back and look at them. I talk about these guys in the book. Go back and look at the famous cases of the people who had an extraordinary market call. The best, the most fun is Elaine Mm-hmm. You remember her? She, she predicted the nineteen eighty seven
2: crash. Exactly. She's been dining out on it ever since, but <laughs> hasn't had a good call since either. Uh huh. You you talk about investment gurus here. Is is that basically what happens? Is you get a good call and then you kind of live off that for a long time? Is that the, the way it works?
3: Well, it, uh, there are only a handful of cases where there have been such spectacular calls that we even remember their names. Uh, the, the, my uh, my idea of an investment guru is somebody who has shown extraordinary skill in analyzing a company and what that company is likely to do in terms of market share in terms of growth in terms of whatever and then buying it and then being right yes, this is this is where market efficiency falls down and and just to be clear on how i feel about this the market is generally very efficient but it is not perfectly efficient the way the academics would have you believe there are people out there who have shown extraordinary skill in being able to buy stocks that go up simply as a result of their prescient analysis of what's going to happen to those companies
2: so your strategy is saying for the most part those are very rare and so you shouldn't count on them so you should have sixty percent or you know more than half of your portfolio in the efficient market theory where you have low expenses and then take some flyers on some more concentrated funds where you do have people that have had a good track record. And overall, by playing mostly safe and taking some risk, you'll come out far better than either taking lots of risk with all kinds of concentrated portfolios or having it all in index funds.
3: I could not have summed it up better.
2: Okay. (laughs) So is, is that an unusual theory on Wall Street? I mean, it seems very strange. Here you have these mutual funds literally charging tens of billions of dollars in management fees every year. People saying they want to put their money with these places because they're going to give them better returns. That's what they're selling. How yeah. can is this the, the greatest fraud in human history that they're charging tens of billions of dollars, and not providing no, service it, it, for that?
3: It, it's not a fraud. It's good marketing. Uh, what it is, I mean, it, it's very good marketing. But look at the record. I mean, um, uh, Morningstar publishes a list of funds, large cap funds, that have been in existence for fifty. Years or or longer. Mm-hmm. That's a really good sample. Okay, I have a chart of them in my book. Now, there are about I'm doing this from memory. 350 mutual funds, large cap mutual funds that have a 15 year track record. Okay.
2: Okay.
3: Um, something like 60 or 65 percent of them have underperformed their benchmark which is the s&p 500
2: mm-hmm.
3: all right now
2: that's so 35 now, percent of
3: said let, let me just add another point to this of those that outperformed okay yeah. most of them did it by a percentage that is not particularly meaningful and then over on the left of the chart there's a little bulge uh of people that have outperformed by a significant amount, and if you think you're going to be lucky enough to pick who those are, uh, you're going to be a very lucky person indeed, and I'm not betting on you.
2: <laughs> I see. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, we're having a lot of fun here. This is uh, Jordan Goodman, your Money Answers host, and my guest this hour is Peter Tanos, who's written a new book called Build a Winning Portfolio uh, by Kaplan Publishing. He is also president of Lynx Investment Advisory in Washington, D.C., and we'll be back after this.
0: line in business. Voice America business. Tune in
2: every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for the Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart. Grow profit. And grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business.
4: You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker. The Crow Show with Paul McGlacklin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk, heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business.
1: both their products and services are invited to become members of the money answers network the public can sign up for membership in the money answers network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources to learn more visit www.moneyanswers.com get ahead with money answers
0: the internet's only all business and financial radio network voice america business
3: You've
1: been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. And my guest this hour is Peter Tanos, who's the president of Lynx Investment Advisor in Washington, D.C. Uh, He's written a new book called Build a Winning Portfolio, uh, published by Kaplan Publishing. It's part of a series by Kiplinger's as well. Uh, welcome back to the show, Peter. Thank you, Jordan. Okay, well, I want to get into some things you talk about here that people may not be familiar with, which is the the Greek letters. You talk about uh, alpha and beta. Yeah. Let's just do a, a brief description of alpha and beta and how investors should be using those concepts.
3: Okay. Beta. Uh, most investors are somewhat familiar with beta. It's a, it it basically is a uh, is a term that refers to the volatility versus the market. So. Uh, or something else, but in most cases, the market. So, for example, a beta of one is the stock market, and a beta of one and a half means it's fifty percent more volatile than the stock market, and a beta of 0.5 means it's fifty percent less.
2: Yeah. Alpha. Well, let's is, just w- talk about beta ahead. for a second while you've got that. And how should you use that concept? Do you want high beta funds or low beta funds, or some combination of the two, or how, well, what do you how do you use beta?
3: Yeah. Um, uh, you want, let me answer this in a, uh, a, a dumb way. Uh, uh, you you don't mind high beta if the beta produces excess returns, meaning high volatility is okay as long as the results are dynamic as well. Uh, in most cases, since you do, don't know the answer to that question in advance, is that if you want to be aware of how volatile a particular investment is, and and that is uh, that, and then you make up your own mind as to whether or not the volatility is tolerable for you.
2: And you're saying that's something most investors do not particularly understand—is how volatile. I think,
3: yeah, no, most of them don't. But but, and there are lots of different measures. Some of them are more techie to our business, like R squared. And uh, uh, standard deviation is the is the standard measure of volatility that we use in the business uh, more commonly. It's a little bit more complicated, uh, but it will tell you how much a particular fund, um, uh, uh, how volatile it is compared, uh, you know, to other funds.
2: So you're saying so if you have a bull market and you're pretty convinced the stock market's going to be going up. Then you'd want high beta funds. If you think the market's going down, you should want low beta funds. Does that make sense?
3: Well, uh, partially. Uh, Again, you know, beta uh, high beta does not does not mean you know outperformance. It just means more volatile. So uh, you know, in a perfect world, uh, the best performing funds would be low beta. You'd have uh, a fund that has. Uh, that outperforms the S and P 500 and has half the volatility of the S and P 500, or half the standard deviation, and that would be uh, that, you know that would be ideal. It just doesn't work that way. So beta is just one measure to use, or in the case of a portfolio as a whole, standard deviation is a measure to gauge the volatility of your portfolio compared to the market or something else.
2: And now, tell us about alpha.
3: Alpha is a measure of excess performance. Alpha is the performance you get above a particular uh, benchmark. So, for example, you create alpha by beating an index by a certain amount, and that obviously, alpha is what alpha is the holy grail of investment.
2: So, the more you beat an index. Want. The more you beat an index, the more alpha you have. Exactly right. And you can look up alpha on Morningstar and things like that to see how a fund is consistently out outperforming or underperforming an index? Right. Do you have negative alpha if you're underperforming an index? Well, it'll be, yeah, it'll be less than one. Uh, so one is meeting the index, meeting your benchmark. Uh, Above no, that it, is outperforming. No,
3: it'll, be, it'll be less than zero, sorry.
2: So zero means zero. In, in other are, words, positive, anything positive in alpha is
3: excess performance. And anything negative is obviously underperformance.
2: So, so what is the range of funds uh, in, in alpha? I mean, does it go from, like, minus 10 to plus 10, or just to get no, a sense uh, of I
3: No, no. Uh, uh, for instance, an alpha of 2 or 3 is is, is extraordinarily good. Uh-huh. So, uh,
2: all right, so if you have and, that... And, and, the and
3: the minuses don't last for long because they get fired or they go out of business.
2: <laughs> so it seems, again, the, the easy answer is just get funds that have consistently high alpha, or alpha correct. of 2 or 3.
3: Yeah, yeah Correct, but... Also remember that the chances are that the fund you buy with high alpha is not going to have it anymore just because you bought it.
2: Oh, uh-huh. and that's th- this a, is probably that's what people do. The smartest
3: way of saying that you know you can't predict the future.
2: But probably people do that, right? They buy high, high alpha funds because it's got a track record that's looks appealing. Correct. So, so from word that simple. So, from a, a, a mutual fund shareholders' point of view. Um, You've got money going into the, the funds that are doing best, and you're saying in, that in itself makes it difficult for them to repeat that performance. Ah, they, they get more m- more assets, important. and that's makes so it that makes it harder to replicate that.
3: Yes, uh, I- indeed. Uh, uh, you, you just raised a very, very important point. When you get a mutual fund or a manager that has had a brilliant performance over one, two, or three years. Guess what happens? He gets, or she gets, flooded with new money. Now, all of a sudden, the guy who made a lot of money managing a $100 million fund has $2 billion to manage. And guess what? It's not so easy anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm glad you raised this point, because it's something else the investor needs to be aware of. A flood of money going to a manager who got written up in Money Magazine or appeared on your broadcast or uh, was otherwise feted around town as the new superstar or the next Peter Lynch uh, is likely to be deluged with money and and is also likely to find out that picking those nice little companies that uh, he was successful in picking earlier is no longer possible because he's got too much money to invest. So it's just another thing to look out for.
2: Now the argument against that, and I've heard this from fund managers, is said when you have more assets, you get better information. That brokers call you first with the latest inside stuff, and because you're big, uh, you know you can move faster and get better information than some little guy that they're going to call at the last of the yeah, list. Yeah, that, that's
3: a weak argument for for somebody who's just gotten a lot of money. First of all, the old model of the brokers calling you, you know, getting the first call from the brokers. Uh, that model is going by the wayside rapidly because uh, sell-side research, meaning the research departments on Wall Street, uh, are no longer what they were because of the conflicts that they had with their corporate finance Subject, a whole different subject. So the notion that great ideas are coming out of uh, brokerage houses' research departments is no longer as true as it used to be.
2: I mean, some would argue there that, again, it's gotten better because now you have Regulation FD and everybody's basically on the same plane, so you have to pay you know, good money to get this these really, really right. smart people uh, to beat the, the level playing field. So the people on the sell side are even more skilled than they ever used to be, cause, and they don't have any conflicts that they used to as well. Yeah, but the problem
3: is that, that uh, the sell side brokers used to be smart and very well paid, not because of the advice they gave to the brokers to give to their clients, but because of uh, because they were pushing corporate finance deals, uh, which made a heck of a lot more money than the puny commissions that brokers make now uh, executing transactions. So uh, it so, works. So, so what has far, happened? I'm not a big fan of sell side research.
2: So what has happened since Regulation FD and Sarbanes Oxley and the Chinese Wall and all the things that have separated? investment research and investment banking. How has that affected investment research? Uh,
3: A lot of the research now uh, is done by separate private research firms that get paid in soft dollars or get paid in hard dollars uh, by customers directly, by pension funds and by others who want their research unconflicted uh, by other activities, which is a nice way of saying that they don't want their research from brokerage houses.
2: So that sounds like it's better research than it used to be, if it's more objective.
3: Yeah, but most investors don't have access to it. Really? Oh, no, sure. I mean, you know, pension funds do.
2: I mean, you're talking about like a value line, or standard and poor's? Oh or... no,
3: no, no. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about little shops that you've never heard of, where a lot of great analysts are now congregating and getting paid uh for offering pure research and and not corporate finance activities. So uh the value lines uh, and those have been around for a long time, uh, Morningstar and others they provide a very valuable service at not very much money. But again, here again, the predictive value of this stuff is questionable. You have to be very careful uh and use the information for gathering the facts, and then you've got to make judgments about back to allocating your portfolio, diversifying the risk, and making sure that uh, your portfolio can withstand inevitable problems that come down the road that you and I cannot predict.
2: So you're saying, but how about these small shops that are exclusive and being paid by big pension funds? Do they have a better record because they're more exclusive and more objective?
3: There are no records uh, for them. Their their value is in the eyes of the beholder. Their value is uh, in their value is based on how much their clients believe that they are getting in for good information from them. In some cases, it may simply be to find out what's going on in a particular industry. They may not be interested in in. Uh, In stock recommendations at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just want to know, you know, should I be investing in this industry or that industry? Is is now a good time to be investing in the uh, oil industry? Mm -hmm. Etc. And 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 they provide sound research on you know on what's happening.
2: So for individuals who don't have millions of dollars in their portfolio, are there ways of accessing what you think is high quality, objective uh, investment research?
3: First of all, this this. I think we've been talking uh I think what you and I have been talking about is research on stocks. Right. Okay. Uh let me today say and I, and I I mentioned this quite a few times in the book and this is a controversial subject. Jordan and and I hear the music so we can talk about it when we get back but here is my statement. Individuals should never buy well almost never buy stocks
2: all right we'll definitely get to that after the break Uh, this is jordan goodman of the money answer show and my guest this hour is peter tanos who's the author of a new book called building build a winning portfolio by kaplan publishing and we'll be back after this
0: A bottom line in business. Voice America Business.
1: Know how to activate that switch, and so can you. The winner's attitude with Jeff and Val G. Broadcast each Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The winner's attitude. Switch me on.
0: The bottom line in business. Voice America Business.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Peter Tanos, which is spelled T-A-N-O-U-S, who's written a new book called Build a Winning Portfolio. He's also president of Lynx Investment Advisory in Washington, D.C. Uh, Peter, we well, you might give them a, a website for you to, the, to, for them to contact you at Lynx as well.
3: Uh, www.lynxinvestment, L-Y-N-X, and then the word investment uh, in singular, uh,
2: dot com. Very good. Well, right before the break, you said an individual investor uh, should never buy an individual stock. They should basically only do mutual funds. Why would you say that?
3: Well, I'll answer a question with a question. If you're going to buy stocks, and I'm assuming that you're a serious fellow and you're going to do some research on the stocks that you buy, and I'm going to assume that, you know, you're not employed in the business, so you'll be doing this part-time, maybe spending a half an hour to an hour a day doing the research and then deciding what stocks to buy. My question is, spending an hour a day doing this, explain to me, and more importantly to yourself, how you're going to do better than somebody who spends eight hours a day doing exactly the same thing.
2: Well, software today that will tell you exactly what to buy. It's the software that has the intelligence.
3: That's how people- are you going to do better? Why is it that you are going to do better than an investment professional?
2: So you're saying that individual investors almost never do better than professionals. The professionals n- almost never do better than the market. <laughs> so so,
3: so we're taking it down a notch here. The professional, now for the sake of this discussion, let's assume that you know, you're both just as smart. Okay? Yeah. You're both really smart.
2: And you have similar tools. So.
3: You have similar tools, except that the investor does it eight hours a day and you do it one. Explain to me how you're going to do better.
2: So it's a matter of the amount of time you put into it.
3: Well, it's a matter of the amount of time and the professionalism and whatnot. Now, if you want to tell me that you're going to do as well spending an hour a day as the guy who spends eight hours a day, then um, great. You've got something that I can't possibly identify, but for lack of a better word, I'll call it luck If you do, if you do better. And you can call it whatever you want.
2: Yet there are all kinds of programs being marketed all the time you know, the red lights and green lights and the green arrows and the red arrows and all these different things, that if you follow this 15 yeah, minutes a day, right. Yeah, I mean, Jordan,
3: there are a lot of, you know, Las Vegas is the, I, I, is the second or first most visited tourist spot in the country, too. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people go there, and most of them don't come out winners, but they have a great time. My point is that there are an awful lot of individuals who enjoy doing this, and sometimes they make money and sometimes they don't, and i have a pretty good feeling that they don't probably benchmark themselves appropriately against uh, what they should or shouldn't be doing what we tell our clients is that if you really like the idea of buying stocks yourself take a portion of your portfolio maybe 5 or 10% and manage that money yourself and we have a number of clients that do that and but you know leave the serious investing to the pros and properly allocated, and we'll review how they're doing together. Now, in some cases, the the, the people who are, met, who are buying the stocks themselves actually do much better. But why is that? Because they only buy four or five stocks, and that is a very concentrated portfolio. And if two or three of them do extremely well, then obviously they're going to beat a portfolio of 300 stocks.
2: Let's just talk a little bit about, you have in Chapter 9 of uh, Building a Winning Portfolio, uh, it's about picking financial advisors. What are some of the uh, tips that you would just generally give on h- how to get the best kind of advisors for your situation?
3: Well, first, um, obviously, to get a financial advisor, you're going to have to have a portfolio of a certain size. Uh, I'm going to say, you know, fifty to to $100,000 dollars. If your portfolio is less than that, uh, 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 may I modestly say that my book will do the job for you.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, if you ha- as you develop a larger portfolio, uh, professional advice will be useful. But here is the conundrum: what you want to avoid is getting advice from somebody who earns money by selling you stuff. I mean, the last place you want to get advice from is from somebody who's going to earn a commission on the mutual fund that you buy.
2: But the only problem is people who are are fee-only and not commission are going to take, you know, minimums that are going to be quite high, because that's the only way they make money. That's the problem.
3: Now, fee-only is obviously the best way to go, because you're getting pure advice and you're paying for it. Yeah. Yeah. uh, and and chances are they're going to recommend no-load funds. Uh, one of the points I harp on in the book uh, ad nauseum is there is never ever a reason to buy a load fund unless you like to make a life avocation out of supporting brokers.
2: Yet about eighty uh, percent of the fund assets are in load funds now. Say again, yet about eighty percent of the mutual fund assets are through load funds these days. No loads are becoming an endangered species.
3: Oh, they! I don't think they are. I, I think there are plenty of uh, there are plenty of no load funds with great track records. Uh, so so much so many that you there is no reason at all to buy a load fund and pay you know four or five percent to the broker who sold it to you, which you're going to have to make up in performance, and that could take a while. Yeah. So so the the point about a financial advisor is you want a financial advisor for to get advice, not to get sold something. Mm -hmm. So uh, by far, uh, and and that is not to say that there aren't very good and very competent financial advisors who earn commissions. I'm not suggesting that there aren't. I am certain that there are many of them out there. But I don't know who they are, and if you don't know who they are, unless you get a terrific recommendation from somebody who's done very well with one, you're better off with a fee-only advisor.
2: Now you talk about rap programs. Now, in theory, that would be the solution. They're getting a percentage of your assets, correct? And therefore, their incentive is to make the assets grow so yeah, their fees go. Yeah, that's a up. little
3: bit better. Uh, the, most of the large brokerage firms have these rap programs. You pay one fee, and you, and that covers. Uh, what he gets, it covers the commissions to, uh, that, that are charged by the managers. It covers the fees to the managers. And usually, but, but you have to be careful that most of them are negotiable. Some of them start as high as 3%, which is way too much. Mm-hmm. But under 2%, uh, that becomes an interesting alternative. Uh, one of the problems, of course, is that you only have access to managers that the brokerage firm has an arrangement with. Uh, but many of the larger firms, like the smith Barneys, the Merrill Lynch, and the Morgan Stanleys, have good enough and inclusive enough programs that these are a possible alternative.
2: And then you talk about discount uh, brokerage firms and mutual funds. Is that an alternative for most people, to just go directly to the fund companies?
3: Yeah. Um, you can go to a big fund company that has a lot of choices. Vanguard is especially desirable because they're essentially... Um, uh, not only uh, not only no load, but they're essentially index funds, and they could put together a portfolio for you of a variety of index funds, which will be low cost, and, of course, uh, the asset allocation will determine your returns.
2: Well, as we close here, why don't you just give an overall uh, piece of advice on how people should be allocating their portfolios based on all we've talked about here.
3: All right basically you should allocate your portfolio over a variety of different asset classes i'm not going to give specific percentages because each person is different i do address that uh... at some length in the book uh... uh... the main everybody can get rich with a portfolio the key is, is staying with it and not giving up you have a much better chance of keeping your portfolio For a very long period of time, if you allocate it so that it doesn't bounce around too much and you don't get nervous. But, uh, we have some sample portfolios in my book. Uh, we show what will happen over a period of time if you add just a little bit each month, uh, at different uh, dollar amounts. And, uh, as you can see, if you are consistent enough and patient enough, history suggests that you will get
2: rich. Well, that's a very good message to end on, that uh, it may seem complicated, but actually if you follow your advice, it's quite simple. Putting together a winning portfolio almost on autopilot. You don't have to think about it too much. Having good low-cost mutual funds can really pay off in the long run. Instead of spending all your time chasing Wall Street research and picking individual stocks, you're you're trying to make it easy for people.
3: And Indeed, and I, I should say before we go, Jordan, that uh, you've written a lot of books, and uh, uh, including some classics in the business, and it's a real pleasure to be talking to you.
2: Well, thanks so much, Peter. This has been terrific. Uh, my guest has been Peter Tanos, uh, the author of a new book called Build a Winning Portfolio. The publisher is Kaplan Publishing. Uh, Peter is also the president of Lynx Investment Advisory in uh, Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.